Hello and welcome to the first ever life podcast. This is going to be an amazing journey full of interesting people and just meeting them and discussing about life and how tricky it is sometimes. And I don't need to tell you that, do I? Because we are currently in a global pandemic of coronavirus. But what I want you to do is just want you to relax and enjoy this podcast because this podcast with Dr. Jennifer Paxton, the most amazing scientist um, and researcher and lecturer and parent and person and human being, was interviewed before coronavirus was a thing. So let's go back to a bit of a simpler time, shall we? And enjoy that um, moment. So I'll come back at the end with all the websites and all the information that you need. But here's one thing I want you to do. Sit back. Enjoy. Unless you're driving, please concentrate on the road. Speak soon. Bye. Jennifer, thank you so much for being my first podcast guest. You're welcome. And here we are at the University of Edinburgh. Yeah, and we're sitting in a meeting room. And it's really nice being here. We just had some coffee. Yeah. And we brought in, well, I went to Lidl and bought some custard <laughs> pastries. I'm not sure if that's allowed. But why not? Not meant to bring your own food into the universe. I don't, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> not a good start. But listen, how are you? How's life? Life's good, thanks. Excellent. And so, tell me about you. Well, tell our listeners about yourself. What do you do? What do I do? Um. Well, I'm so I'm Jennifer. I live in Edinburgh. I work at the University of Edinburgh as a lecturer in anatomy mm-hmm. and I also run a tissue engineering research group. Um, so that's my that's my day job and then So I'm gonna stop you just there because I know because I should tell our listeners or our listener depends. <laughs> <laughs> um, that we've already worked together on something called Building Body Parts, yeah. um, which is fantastic. So I know a little bit about tissue engineering, but can you tell us what tissue sure. engineering is? Sure, so um, tissue engineering is uh, quite a new, exciting science. It's where we try to um, build new body tissues and organs in a lab. So the idea is that if somebody had an injury or disease, we could take the patient's own cells and we could grow them, say, a new heart or a new piece of bone or a new liver, etc., etc., from the patient's own cells, which means that they wouldn't need to undergo a, a transplant from someone else. And you could get a piece of their own body made and transplanted back into them. So exciting. And I remember teaching it with my class and they were so excited about that and that um, the difference between remember you talking about or you put a slide at the start about it being science fiction yeah <laughs> that um, 
I I forget where the picture is. Picture was from, but the I always remember the picture of the ear on the the mouth. Yeah. Yeah, and that yeah. idea of tissue union. <laughs> Definitely, that's that's one of the the key images that. Well, it's really how the public themselves are introduced to the field and. For a long time it was thought of as science fiction, it was really you know, what are what are these scientists doing in labs, are they really growing body parts on the back of animals, so that's, that sounds really gruesome but that that was a totally manufactured image mm -hmm. um, for, the, for the media, um, we're not all Frankensteins <laughs> and it's certainly not as gruesome as it is portrayed sometimes, it's, it's a really really exciting new field and I just love being able to be part of it. Yeah, so I, I interrupted you a little bit there. Right, so you, you're an anatomy lecturer yep. and you run your own lab. I do, yeah. Paxton Lab. Paxton Lab. Um, so tell us about a, a typical day in the life of Dr Jennifer Paxton. Oh well, first thing I'll say is that there really is no such typical day. It's, it's a, a very varied and busy, interesting job. Um, so I can, if I'm in my teaching role, I can be lecturing anatomy to hundreds of medical students at the one time, or I can be teaching small group tutorials or maybe some final year honours students, maybe 12, 16 to a class. Uh, I also teach gross anatomy in the dissecting lab. So we have classes where our medical and science students actually come in and get to engage with uh, real body parts. Uh, or if I'm doing my research, I can be meeting research students, uh, discussing results, planning new experiments, writing papers, writing funding applications. Wow. Um, don't really get to be in the lab much myself now, which is a bit disappointing because I always enjoyed that part of it. Um, but there's a, there's a whole load of other administrative duties as well that I have to do. And so really if you were to look at my calendar, it would be a very varied mix of all three of those roles wow. <laughs> um, every single day. But oh. that's why I like it because yeah. it's keeps me busy, keeps me on my toes, yeah. and you always have a, an interesting day planned. So, where do you have the time to do um, outreach and come into primary schools to teach <laughs> teachers and students like me to all about tissue and anatomy? Well, I, I think it's, it's an important job of a scientist these days. I think that we have to educate the public um, in what we're doing and generally the response is really positive so I really really like it. I, I love sharing what I do with the public. Um, anatomy especially is a subject that really seems to grab the public's attention because we all have our own body and it's, it, it kind of makes sense that people want to know what's going on under the skin. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the tissue engineering side I really like to bring in because it's it's the future and it's using the basis of anatomy as, as we know it and taking that into the future where we can actually look at growing these 
organs, tissues for the good of, of healthcare. Wow, yeah, definitely. And it's it's something that's really interesting that um, working with young people and when we were doing the, the Building Body Parts project we were talking about you know that uh, that picture of the skull that says I live inside your face. <laughs> yeah. And my class were saying, No. Well, yes. Yes, it does. Everyone has a skull. Uh, skulls are not just for Halloween. Exactly. That's so important to learn. And I've got to add as well that um, although you do um, tissue engineering, mm -hmm. so you do anatomy, the teaching, you go to outreach, you go to primary schools, and you've just published an amazing book called Anatomical. Oh, thank you. And are you, um, are you a time lord? Do you pause time <laughs> or how? <laughs> no. And do you have time for your, um, like, do you have a family? Do you have time to do that? I do. So I, yeah, I'm, um, I'm mum to a two and a half year old daughter. Um, and actually, that's, that ties in quite well because um, I returned from maternity leave when she was um, just under a year old and it was throughout that time that I'd actually been asked um, by the publishers to write the book. Okay. Um, and so I decided to do it, but because I was working part-time I used the other part of the week to write the book, so um, it was it, it was amazing actually. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think there were times where I thought, "What on earth have I done? <laughs> How am I am I ever going to get this finished?" But um, it was a, it was a great way for me to get back into the swing of things after being off for a year, mm. um, and use my time to to write about a subject that I absolutely adore. Um, but from a very different perspective than I normally do in my, my working days. I was going to say that because it's it's really accessible for um, you know people who have had no anatomical experience at all yeah. and, and don't know all the medical jargon that's sometimes mm. in this website and books. And you know, it's um, what age range would you say it's for? So probably sort of nine plus, but I mean anyone with an interest in the human body, um, up into to adult really. Um, a lot of the the really good reviews have actually been from adults who have just said this is this is great. Um, it's uh, like you say accessible. That was something that I really wanted to not make the subject something that people should be scared of or um, feel was gruesome or anything and I think anatomy can have that connotation sometimes it's, it's often thought of as a an old and very dead subject if we pardon the pun but it's, and sometimes it's kind of linked to that kind of horror you know yeah cutting apart yeah and and that's really what as anatomists we're trying to get away from the fact that anatomy is very much living anatomy mm. it's what's going on inside our bodies all the time and it's not just something that is a, 
you know, a dead body that's been dissected. That's that's really not what we want to be portraying nowadays. Yeah, and um, I don't know when this podcast is going out, but World Book Day, um, mm-hmm. next Thursday. Oh, okay. Which you've got your activity book coming out for. Yes, yeah. So there is a there is an activity book that goes along with the series, where um, children can find their way through a brain maze, or learn how to draw uh, an eye or a heart, mm. um, and this is all through the work with the illustrator Katie Weideman, who is an incredible tattoo artist from the states. Oh, is she? And so she has. She's really made the book absolutely beautiful to mm. look at. So hopefully it's it's um, entertaining to read, but it's also beautiful to look at. Definitely. And so for... She's from the States. Mm-hmm. So that must have been quite difficult to collaborate over. Or was it not being living in this world of connections. Uh, well, no, I suppose that's that's a good point. Um, all our contact was with digital and it was really my suggestions of images that I thought would go well with the text and then Katie would, would draw up some roughs um, and then I would have a look at them and correct them or make some suggestions. And it would be a kind of iterative process going back and forth until eventually we had the full colour images produced, mm. which went into the final copy of the book. Must have been amazing to see it step by step. It was. It was. It was really incredible to see it coming together. Yeah. And I think about that <coughs> that first day with the, the blank sheet of paper in front of me, to finally walking into Waterstones and seeing it on a shelf was really quite amazing. Yeah. And I can imagine for your daughter it must be quite interesting to go in. Does she know it's does she know that you've written a book that she does? Like yeah. So <laughs> so mummy's book. She likes <laughs> she likes to shout about mummy's book and every time. So the front cover has a, a beautiful selection of Katie's uh, drawings on the front, but right on the centre there's a skull, and so whenever my daughter sees a skull, she shouts, "Mummy's book." <laughs> so you've copyrighted <coughs> yeah. all skulls and skeletons. Jennifer. Yeah. I sent you some questions. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping with this podcast that I can ask everyone similar questions because this podcast is all about life and it's all about how to cope with life sometimes and look at all the achievements that we've got but also talk about you know the failures and things that we can change and things that we can learn from so and just as I've said on my little trailer bit as well just want to meet interesting people that I find interesting and you're the most interesting person I know. So, <laughs> it's fantastic to Thank have you, you for the first, first bet. So, the first question, um, can you tell me about the happiest time of your life so far? Hmm, okay. So, 
I think I could probably split this into personal and professional, if that's okay. Perfect, yeah. Um, I'll start with professional. I think probably the happiest moment was when I when I got my job offer for the University of Edinburgh. Uh -huh. um, I, I'll never forget the moment that email came into my inbox and I just, I, I, I wanted to click on it but I didn't want to <laughs> click on it because it was it was going to be the most pivotal moment of my life I so, think. So where were you? Yeah, I was working um, at the University of Birmingham as a postdoc um, and I'd been there about four and a half years I think at that point and I really wanted to move on. I really felt like that was a good time for me to perhaps think about starting my own research group. Mm. Um, I had a lot of my own ideas a lot of things that I wanted to explore myself and I also really really wanted to move back to Scotland. <laughs> yeah I was going to say so you're from Scotland originally yeah, I can tell by the accent. <laughs> I'm a Glasgow girl. Ah. <laughs> West Coast. West Coast <laughs> West is best. So just when you were speaking about Birmingham there I was thinking I wouldn't have thought of you as a, a brummie. <laughs> no. So what took you down to Birmingham? And um, I, I got offered a, a really good job down there so when I, I did my PhD at the University of Dundee actually ah. and when I was finishing up in Dundee and my PhD supervisor at the time and a collaborator had applied for a grant based on my PhD work and mm -hmm. that was to continue on as, as a separate project and we got that money so I was able to move down there on a, a funded postdoc which was brilliant, it was so good to be able to continue on my work somewhere else. So how was um, Birmingham compared to Dundee and Glasgow? Uh, big. <laughs> I can imagine. Big and busy. Yeah. Quite frantic. Is that the first time you've lived in England? Yeah. Or? So was it a, must have been quite a big jump to go to, is it the second largest in, I'm not sure. I think, I think it is, yeah. It's a big place. I mean it is, it is a big, big place and it, to go from a tiny, small city like Dundee uh, to the, the big <laughs> the big bustling city of Birmingham was quite a transition. Mm -hmm. um, I had some happy times in Birmingham but it wasn't home. No. And I really had been feeling quite strongly for a while that I wanted to come back. I wanted to be close to family and I wanted to set down some roots for myself. Mm. Um, when you're a postdoc, you're working on fairly short-term contracts. I mean, I, my first postdoc was a, a three-year contract, which was was pretty amazing actually to have three years confirmed money. Um, but you can have contracts that are as short as six months, and so it's really it's really hard to to find security. Yeah. 
and to think about other things in your life like buying a house or family or all those other things that should be important things in your life but when you're on such short-term contracts you can't really give them the attention that they deserve. Of course because you wouldn't be able to get a mortgage if you're on a short-term contract. Mm -hmm. Yeah that's really interesting so I mean for someone moving to wanting to come to Scotland a job offer at University of Edinburgh must have been Amazing. Oh, and, it was a dream come true. And at the anatomy department, which is, is that something that you've, that you've wanted to do? Is anatomy yeah, because? I, so my my undergraduate degree was actually in anatomy, which I adored, <laughs> um, and that was at the University of Glasgow, and I just loved it. I loved every single thing about it, and. I think for me, even though I moved into tissue engineering and I worked, when I was in Birmingham, I worked on a tissue engineering subject but in a chemical engineering department, I really missed the involvement in anatomy and Mm. I, I I was quite lucky in that because I was the only person with a biological background there, I was asked to give the engineers some anatomy lectures. Right. And it was when I was doing that that I remembered <laughs> and I just thought, I love this so much because it's, it's, it's the engineering of the body, it's how the body's put together, it's how it, it works and for as long as I can remember I've just been fascinated with how things work mm. and what's more fascinating than our own bodies. Yeah, I mean I must say... Um, I just went up to the museum for a sneak peek and the massive elephant skeletons are just incredible. It must be an amazing place to work. It, it really is, but you know, it's, it's weird because it becomes your place of work with the busyness and the, the stressfulness and just your normal day-to-day and it's only when I bring in external people or I have visitors and I show them around the building that it you know makes you stop and go, mm. Oh my goodness, you know, this is such an amazing place. Yeah. I can't believe I actually work here. <laughs> Can you imagine? So you said personally as well, happiest time of your life? Um, well my wedding day. Oh. I yeah. think I have to put that in there. That was a a beautiful day on the, the bonnie banks of Loch Lomond. Oh, perfect for a Glasgow girl. Oh, of course. Yeah. Could, you couldn't in, be anybody anywhere else. Were you in Glasgow at the time? Were you in Scotland at the time of your wedding? Or did you come up from Birmingham? Yeah, it was when I was a postdoc in Birmingham. Ah, okay. Yeah, had a, a home wedding. And then, on a equal footing to that was the day I became a mummy, because <laughs> that was pretty amazing. Yeah. Can you remember the first time you saw your daughter? Remember yeah. The <laughs> yeah. 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 It was more a disbelief than anything else. I think at that moment in time, but mm. um, yeah, just 
couldn't believe that she was here. And I didn't know if I was having a boy or a girl at the time. Oh. I kept it as a surprise. So it was quite amazing to be told by my husband that it's a girl. <laughs> <laughs> question is if you were I think we've touched on before maybe you are a time traveller that can pause time but if you could time travel and go back to 12 year old Dr Paxton <laughs> was she a Dr Paxton? No. Um, 12 year old Jennifer what would you say to her? Oh, I think I'd give her a big cuddle Yeah. first of all because 12-year-old Jennifer wasn't a very happy 12-year-old. Oh no, why is that? <clears throat> oh, I, I didn't have a very happy time at school. Mm. I was bullied a lot. Um, and so I think if I could go back and speak to her, I would just try and, try and tell her that it's okay, that everything will be okay. And... Try not to worry so much about these other people. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting about the people that affect us. Yeah. <laughs> so when I was um, putting those questions together, I was thinking to myself about what would I say to my 12-year-old parent? And it's the people who, they probably don't know how much effect they had on me. No. Very interesting. So did um, 12 year old Jennifer want to be a scientist? I don't really think she did. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I mean I, I really, I, I loved school. I think that's maybe one of the reasons I got bullied so much was because I was a little bit of a perfectionist. And <laughs> Isn't that really interesting that the people who are really good at school, really clever, are the people usually that get bullied? Strange yeah. Problem. Why is that? I don't know. Yeah. It's, not, it's not cool to be clever. It's not cool to, to <laughs> do well, is it? It's not cool to be successful. No. <laughs> no. Yeah, it's not cool to get a good job and make money. <laughs> it's very, it's, it's strange. Sorry, yeah, you're, so you're a perfectionist. Yeah, and I I liked all the subjects, but I was also really into music. And uh, so I played the violin and piano. Oh, wow. And I had quite serious thoughts about perhaps taking that on as a career. I definitely considered it. And, uh, yeah, often thought about what our career as a musician would have been like. Mm -hmm. Do you still play violin on piano? I don't. No? No. Oh, it's a, it's a sad story. Do you want to hear the story? <laughs> of course. Uh, I, I was in fifth year at school, so doing my higher music. 
and I injured my hand by, believe it or not, practicing too hard on the violin. Oh, no. And I actually ripped one of my tendons in my finger. So I was oh, the, under oh, terrible pain and I could hardly play. And so I had to get all these special considerations for my final exam. Um, and I was really sad. So it was before your exam? Yeah, it was, oh. it was I was practicing for my higher practical exam. And I I had to have a, a special arrangement where I would play a, play a piece and then I would uh, rest my hand in warm water for half an hour and then come back and play another piece. So it was, it was terrible. That must have been um, devastating for someone who loved to play the violin. Yeah, it was. It, and, and I, I think it had been almost misdiagnosed at the time because I was just given, you know, powerful painkillers and said just, just keep on, just keep on playing. But what we didn't realise was that there had actually been a rupture. So the next year, I went back to do my six-year studies music which I guess would be advanced higher nowadays. Yeah, for the and younger people. The, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I was, you know, excited to to get on and do that, thinking that I was fixed. But the same thing happened, and um, it you know it turns out that there had been some scar tissue formed, and really I just didn't have as much control over my finger as I needed. So I couldn't really I couldn't play the intricate pieces that I used to. And as disappointing as it was, it, a lot of my love for playing left because I, I, I knew I could do better mm. and that doesn't fit well with my perfectionist attitude. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I know I don't play anymore. I do have a, a violin and I, I've got a piano at home. I bought myself a piano when I moved house last year. That was one of my extravagant purchases. <laughs> and I really enjoy being able to play that now and again. But the violin is something that I think is is just in the past now. So do you think there's a link between you so I'm not too sure about ripping the tendon and is it is that um fixable or is that is it really mm, difficult? Well is it with tendons so tendons are the long, thin straps that connect muscle to bone. And so whenever you want to move a bone, the muscle contracts and it shortens and it pulls on this strap and it moves the bone. Okay. Um, but the thing about tendons is that they don't have a good blood supply. Right. And so that means that when a tendon gets injured, it doesn't heal very well because the nutrients are not being brought in by the bloodstream and all the the um, scar tissue is not being remodelled very well. So tendon and ligament especially, they don't heal well at all. So if you have an injury, it's it's really difficult to get that tissue back up to full strength. Right, okay. Do you think there's a link between you knowing you having that injury and your love for science? Was there part of the 12-year-old Jennifer that was going, how did I do this? Or is that <laughs> I just... don't think... No, not... No, but it is a weird trust uh, of yeah. fate, really, that I, one of the things that I do work on at the moment is tendon injury. Mm. And 
think it's, it's just one of those strange coincidences but at least what I can say is that every time I stand up and talk about how attending rupture can affect quality of life yeah. <laughs> I can say yes it absolutely can and it, it might not be from um, actual physical movement but, but the things that a person can actually enjoy in their life I, I, I'm a prime example of why it's important that we could maybe help to heal tendons a bit better so, was there a favourite violin piece that you loved to play? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one of one of my favourites was meditation. Ah, okay. Uh, Masonic meditation, mm -hmm. and it was it was a piece actually that my gran had requested that I learn to play. Okay. And uh, I did, and I was playing it. And I played it in my six-year studies exam, and I can honestly say that I had never performed it better. But when I finished playing, <laughs> I'm going to get emotional now. <laughs> when I finished playing, um, I never ever played it again. Right. Because I, it was almost like I knew that that was the end. <laughs> oh. I knew that <laughs> I, I wouldn't be able to because the fact that the injury had come back the next year mm. um, just meant that I just had to get through the exam and that I wasn't going to play again so it was like the perfect end to that. <laughs> going out on a high I suppose. Yeah, yeah I mean I was pretty proud of myself mm. the way it came out it was it was it was good but there's yeah that was probably the the one that, that I'll always remember and it's the one piece that if I hear it really takes me back to that time. Yeah, I was going to that's my next question. Could you listen to it or is it quite difficult to um, listen to it? It depends who's playing it. If we're <laughs> playing it well. No, it's nice memories now. It's, yeah. It's nice. So the next question that I'm really interested about is can you tell us about a time that you failed and you overcame it? Yeah, I've got lots of examples. Okay. <laughs> um, so I, I, I can probably split this into personal and professional again, really. Uh, so Please do. The thing, the thing about working in science is that you've got to learn to feel. And you've got to learn to feel well. Okay. Um, and that is, I can, I mean, I can honestly say that it is one of the biggest struggles that I've had professionally because it's it's difficult for somebody who has we kind of touched on it earlier I, I did really well at school I really liked school I am a bit of a perfectionist I like to do things well I like to do things correctly and then suddenly when you go into science, it's not like the science at school where you learn the right answers. You are doing things that nobody else in the world is working on. And that means that we don't know what the right answer is. And sometimes you come up with a hypothesis and you plan a set of experiments to test that hypothesis and then you're wrong. Or your experiment doesn't work. 
so there's something wrong with the methodology. Or you write a paper that you think is brilliant with all this really exciting data and that gets sent away to reviewers and they come back and say no, <laughs> it's not good enough. Or you apply to a funding body and say I've got this really good idea, I want to do all these experiments, please give me the money to do it and they say no. And <laughs> that's really really hard, it's a, it's a hard thing to get used to. I can imagine. Um, yeah, I think it's, I'm just thinking about my teaching, it's something really interesting about if I'm teaching coding, for example, I don't always know the answer. Mm. But my students will come up to me and say, what's the answer? And they'll be quite surprised when they say, I don't know. We need to work it out together. Yeah. And for me, when I was at school, and I think quite a lot of my life, it's always been right or wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there hasn't been a chance for us to, for me to say, oh, I failed that. Let's learn from it. Yeah. But I think that is a really important point, is that so much of early education is based on knowing the right answer. And it, it can be really disconcerting for you to reach the point where you don't actually know the right answer. But being able to acknowledge that you don't know and use that as, as a, a way to actually learn something or go and find out is really like I you know I I remember uh, you know presentations and, and things like that where people would ask questions and there was this intense pressure to try and prove that I knew the answer and that I had all this knowledge in my head and then somebody once said to me you know if you don't know then say you don't know and the first time I said I don't know <laughs> It was so liberating <laughs> because it was like, I mean, don't, you shouldn't go around just going, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, to, to everything, but if you can say, I don't know, but I know how to find out, or I don't know, but I have an idea, I can yeah. test it to out, that's different. So saying, I don't know, full stop, is the end of the road. But, but to say... I don't know. Let's find this out together. Yeah. And that's, I think, so I use that in research quite a lot. And we have to use it in research because if if we knew all the answers, then there would be no point in doing what we're doing. That's so, what science is, so, surely. Yeah. And, and you have to use evidence from other people. So you read the papers that are out there, you read other people's experiments you collate all that together and then you come up with a hypothesis to test. But the same thing goes for teaching, in that if I am teaching something and a student asks me a question and I don't know the answer, I used to be absolutely terrified of being found out or that I was somehow not in the right job or what, what are people going to think if I don't know this piece of information? 
But the same thing happens if you engage with that person and you say, actually, I don't know the answer to that. That's a really good question. Why don't we find out? Suddenly, what you've created is a fantastic learning experience for the student and you. And not just a dead end of shrugging your shoulders and saying, I don't know. Yeah, and they could find out that information if they've got a similar question. They can go, oh, I can use that, whatever you showed them the last time. Yeah, and guaranteed, <coughs> if that happens and you have to find out the information yourself, you'll never forget it. Yeah, exactly, because it's a good question. Um, did you say personally as well? That yes, I mean, I, I kind of... I kind of touched on this before, um, when I was saying about, you know, not being worried that I was going to be somehow caught out, or mm -hmm. um, I was in the wrong job, perhaps, because I have definitely, in the past few years, suffered from, I think, what's now known as imposter syndrome. Okay. Um, and this is frightening, frighteningly common, I think among academics certainly but it's it's where you question yourself and you feel that you know this this feeling that someone is going to catch you out like I you know I was coming into work and thinking someone is gonna take my job away from me like someone is gonna find out that I don't know every single fact <laughs> under the sun and I'm going to get sacked or someone's going to find out that I don't know what I'm talking about or you know this all these fairly irrational thoughts mm -hmm. going through your head and and it had a, a huge effect on my own mental health and well-being yeah so that's an extreme amount of pressure if you're thinking you know you haven't just got when did it start it started at the start of your job here or was it going on for quite a while? Oh, I, I, th I think I think I've always I think I've always suffered from anxiety but I, I but I it's hard for me to dissociate it from just me because I mean I said that my 12 year old self was a perfectionist so I always wanted to do the best I could I always right. wanted to get 100% and so not knowing something to me was, was you know, that, that was quite a bad thing if I didn't mm. know something. I wanted to know. I wanted to get 100%. And so I think that as I continued throughout my career, I still had that same expectation of myself. And also a stubbornness. A, a stubbornness to just keep going and keep working, keep finding things out. And keep pushing myself and pushing myself and pushing myself until I got to the stage where actually I wasn't doing anything productive at all because I was so busy worrying about not doing things right. Right, okay. So this happened that you were you suffered from imposter syndrome or something similar um, before Edinburgh, wasn't just I think so. I think it only really became detrimental to me and my mental health mm. in the past few years, so since I've been at Edinburgh. Um, 
but I think I've always had traits of that before, which I have always just put down to the fact that I wanted to do the absolute best um, at, every, at every single thing that I, I did. Right, so what about having a, having a daughter? Did that change? Did that totally change your life balance? Or? Oh, completely. Um, so I think part of part of the problem was that before before I was a mum, um, your work came first, and invariably those evenings would would drag on. I would get home and I would take my laptop out and I would continue, and I would um, keep working. Uh, weekends were not a two-day weekend. Uh, there was always something to do. There was always something to get on with. There was always um, cells to feed or something if I was still doing lab work or, or something. So I had I'd got into that very, very dangerous pattern, actually, of just being consumed by work. <coughs> but then, of course, becoming a mum you have someone else that relies on you. You have someone else who is all-consuming. <laughs> and so, I, I mean, I'm not shy to say that actually trying to balance those two things was very, very difficult for me in the beginning because I couldn't, I couldn't understand how I could give 100% of myself to two things that meant so much in my life. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So that itself has been a a real a real change and a and a, a real learning experience for me actually to try and balance things properly so that at work I'm my best work self, but that there is a boundary and as soon as that time comes when I'm home. I am my best home self, and I'm a wife and a mum, and that comes first. So, the um, <laughs> the um, imposter syndrome, and um, how do you think having a daughter helped you overcome that, or was it did that stop? I don't know. I think because I also had imposter syndrome by being a mum. Oh, okay. <laughs> because. Oh, you know, you can go to as many baby groups as you like, um, but everyone else seems like they know exactly what they're doing, mm. and you're the only person that doesn't. But maybe everybody else is <laughs> pretending to. Probably. <laughs> Probably. So, have you overcome it, or is it still um, there? I don't think I'll, I'll completely overcome it ever, because I think that... Part of part of what makes me me is my determination and my um, my drive to to keep going and be the best. Mm -hmm. I don't. I think if, if I was to ever lose that grit, um, I don't think I'd be very happy with me. And I think as soon as you stop caring, especially about work and when I said earlier about these, these failures that come along, as soon as you stop caring about failing, um, it stops you working that little bit harder the next time. Yeah. But I think it's just, 
I, I don't think I'll ever stop worrying, but I think I just learn to deal with it better. Mm-hmm. And I can, I can have a bit more confidence in the things that I'm doing. And as long as I'm doing what I think is right for me, for my job and for my lab when I'm at work, and what I'm doing for my family when I'm at home, then I'll be happy with that. Yeah. Amazing. Have you got any strategies that you... If someone was suffering from imposter syndrome or worrying or anxiety, is there a strategy or something that you would maybe say, do this, this would help, or read this, this will help, or watch this. <laughs> is there something that you mm-hmm. could, that you would recommend that just, well, just I, help? I think, um, so there's a couple of books that I read when I was really finding things difficult. Um, and both are by Matt Haig. Oh, okay. And one is called Notes on a Nervous Planet, and the other is Reasons to Stay Alive. And I admit I was, I was nervous about picking a book like that up because I, I thought, I don't need this. I'm nothing wrong with me. I'm fine. I'm fine. But so much of what was in those books just resonated with me, and I, there was something about reading that someone else had felt the way that I'd felt. And that actually everything gets better. And mm. um, was was I mean it was completely eye opening for me. Yeah. And it made me realise that it's okay. <laughs> you know, it's it's all right. I did see him live in Edinburgh when he came to Queen's Hall. Mm. And he's such a amazing speaker. Quite nervous as well, which is quite nice to see. And it totally changed the the way that I thought about life, mm-hmm. but also the way I kind of taught and the way I thought of others. I think everyone yeah. has it. And um, there was one part he was talking about depression and talking about what does depression look like and that typical hands over your face Mm, kind of with your head on your arms typical thing if you google depression that's what comes up and it's that's not what depression looks like depression just looks like a normal person going about their day life yeah I agree with that and it's I think everyone is fighting some battles or some demons mm-hmm. and it's I think we just need to be kinder to everyone. Yeah, no I totally agree. I think that's that's why I like the sound of this podcast because it was about life so it was about the good things and the not so good mm. but acknowledging that all of these things make up your life and that it's not it's not how many times you've failed or it's not if things are going wrong it's it's about balance and seeing 
the good and the bad. So, Jennifer, last question. Mm-hmm. Dinner party. Mm, yeah, yeah, I like this question. My favourite <laughs> question. Imagine you were at a dinner party and you could invite anyone do you want. Mm-hmm. Um, who would it be? And more importantly, why? So the first person would be Dave Grohl. Old David Grohl. Yeah. Yeah? Uh-huh. What's the reason behind Dave Grohl? <laughs> Do I need a reason? <laughs> uh, he is, yeah, he is, um, he's Dave Grohl. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've got an image of you just at this dinner party going, you're Dave Grohl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I probably wouldn't be able to string two words together if I was to actually meet him in person, but... So are you a Foo Fighters fan? Yes, and have been since probably about 12 years old. So yeah, I'd go back and tell 12 year old Jennifer that she's going to be at a dinner party with Dave <laughs> Hold on a second, Foo Fighters have been around since you were 12? Uh, yeah, since before <laughs> I was 12. I came late to the party. Wow. Okay, so what's your... Favourite album, if I can put you on the spot? Colour and the Shape. Okay. Reason? First album I ever got. And I, so I was given that album by my brother one Christmas, where I was also given my own CD player with speakers for my bedroom. Wow. And so that was my one CD, and I just played it over and over and over and over again. And just was just amazed by it. Plus, that's got Everlong on it, which is my favourite Foo Fighters song. Oh wow, reason behind that, or is that...? It's an amazing song. It and, is. Uh, I actually had it played at my wedding as well. Oh. So as me and my husband were newly married and walking up the aisle, that was, that was what was played. <laughs> <laughs> Not really your traditional wedding march, but... No, that's amazing. <laughs> Everlong, the words for Everlong are fantastic, yeah. so that'd be, that'd be an amazing wedding one. Um, okay, so Dave Grohl's sitting at your dinner party. Has he got his guitar with him? Of course. Yeah, is he just acoustically singing Everlong in the background? Yeah, with his check shirt on. <laughs> check shirt. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> so he's sitting there. Who's next to... Mr. Grohl? Um, Darren Brown. Oh. Reason behind Darren Brown? Uh, he just absolutely fascinates me. Yeah? I'm a little bit scared of him, if I'm honest. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I think he would be an amazing person to talk to. I love the idea of mind control and yeah I, I, oh, I, I'd love to learn some of his secrets I do wonder if Dan has got many friends because it must be quite scary when you try to become Dan's friend or you're not sure if he's <laughs> mind controlling you or not yeah. 
And Are you making me be your friend? <laughs> Did I want to be your friend? <laughs> um, but yeah, I must agree that he is such a fascinating person. Have you seen him live? I have, yeah. Oh. Uh, yeah, that was, that was like two and a half hours of absolute fear that I was going to get brought up onto stage for mm. something. But I didn't. It was okay. <laughs> Phew. Um, so is it really, I've never seen him live, but I've seen um, these shows and the, on Netflix and um, on Channel 4, but is it, is it really as captivating live as it is that it looks on the screen? Oh, more so, it's, it, you can't believe the stuff that you're actually seeing happening in front of you. And I used to think, these have got to be stooges. Well, uh, no, no. Uh, if they are, they should all get Oscars for being amazing actors, because I, I, I do not believe that that can be people planted night no. after night. I, I don't. He's um, he's a devil. <laughs> can't explain it. Like, he's amazing. Then have you ever read? This is a really interesting one because have you ever read um, Happy the book? No, I haven't. It's on my list. It's really good. I'm at the end of the last chapter, and the last chapter is about death, Ooh. which is really fascinating, and it's talking about. Death, as in, he starts off by talking, this is meant to be a book about being happy and of talking about death, but it's to help you understand that, you know, life is this short moment, yeah. and to be happy with it, and uh, it's, yeah, just read it, it's okay. amazing. It's, it is on my list, so... And it's, because I've read the Matt Hake because well, it's very different. It's it's more academic mm. this book, and I wouldn't say it's a bedtime read because you really do need to concentrate on it. Mm. But it's yeah, it's changed my way of thinking, Ooh, nice. um, and made me a little bit happier. Oh. And like thought about. My life and how I um, manage anxiety and stress, and he talks a little bit about fame. Everybody wants to be famous, and until they are famous, yeah. <laughs> they don't want to be famous. Yeah. yeah, and he talks about how it's a really interesting bit where he's talking about um, imagine you're famous and imagine you're asked for a photograph and with someone, and you say. Yeah, but it's in a it's in a train station where there's lots and lots of people there. And you say yes, but you say it quietly because you don't want everybody else to know. So you get a picture, and then someone else sees that Dan Brown's getting a picture with someone else, so they come up and try and get a picture. <laughs> then someone else does, and the moment that you say, I don't want to, uh, sorry, I need to go, you're a yeah. bad person. Darren Brown refuses photo yeah. with fan. Exactly. 
exactly and you're yeah. all over and it's it's like Daily what Mail <laughs> story. <laughs> it's like what you said before about um that failure and we all have bad days that if you're famous your bad days are front page news sometimes mm-hmm. or all over the internet. Yeah. And if you're a lecturer sometimes on student recordings. Yeah. <laughs> but hey, let's get back to our um dinner party. So Dave Grohl is playing his guitar in his check shirt. And then Gary Brown is sitting there mind controlling people. <laughs> no, is sitting there being fascinating as he is. Who is sitting next, or who's next on your dinner party list? Can Andrew Scott be invited, please? Andrew Scott. Remind me. Well, he plays Moriarty in Sherlock, <laughs> and the priest in Fleabag. Why do are you I... laughing? <laughs> no, I do know. I do know that. Um, him as Moriarty and Sherlock, because mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of it, and I thought his um, his adaptation of Moriarty was incredible. It is amazing. It really is. He's totally changed my idea of the villain. Yeah. You know, um, is that the reason why you want him to come? Because he played Moriarty yeah, so purely well? purely for his acting ability and nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> And he can just he can just sit there looking pretty. Here's the question: mm-hmm. Is he dressed as Moriarty or the priest? Any <laughs> <laughs> comment? I don't know. <laughs> Either's fine with me. Or is everyone coming dressed in a check shirt? <laughs> if that's an option. Hold on. I've got an image. Dan Brown in a jet shirt. <laughs> no, he's got me a suit. That's the only thing I've ever seen him in. So. Dave Grohl in a suit? No. 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 <laughs> Don't be stupid. <laughs> so it's not. Just come dressed as you want. <laughs> Night. <laughs> we'll let Andrew decide on that one. Um, so, Dan Brown, Dave Grohl. Andrew Scott, the doorbell rings. Who's at the door? Who's at the door next? So we're going to go academic now. Okay. Um, so Professor Dave Sublack, oh. who would like to join us? Well, that's a name I know. Mm-hmm. But tell us, who's Professor Dave Sublack? So she is a forensic anthropologist and anatomist, um, okay. now at Lancaster University. And I just think she is amazing. She is a, an excellent academic. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a successful woman who has had a family, so I think that's something that should always be celebrated, that you know, women can have an academic, a very successful academic career and a family. Um, and I also... She, she was also my internal examiner for my PhD at Dundee, oh, wow. so I have actually met her. 
and she's just a lovely, lovely person. Yeah. So she she kind of encompasses all the things that I hope that one day I can be, um, you know, successful in my career. She's also a, a fantastic author. Right. She's written a really good book lately called All That Remains. Ah, um, yes. And it's like a, it's like a white cover yeah. with skeleton on it. Yeah, so, that's yeah. right. Um, so she's, she's just a, a fascinating person and a, a real inspiration and I would just like to chat with her, I think. Yeah. <laughs> about, about life. Because when was the last time you saw her? Have you ever seen her in a seen her lecture or? Oh yeah, so when I was at Dundee um, and she was she was also based at Dundee at that time she used to give public lectures and, and things quite often I'm so I used to go along to I'm sure I saw her do something in Dundee can't remember but she was just fascinating it was something to do with the news and I can't remember what it was um, so, yeah, so it, yeah, there's not many that I can think of Professor Deans no, in no. science. Yeah, quite an achievement. Especially if it's got a family. Yeah, and that, that's why I, <clears throat> I think it's really important that we celebrate women who have been able to achieve that and try to normalise it a bit more so that hopefully other women can follow in their footsteps. Mm -hmm. There's that phrase that you cannot be what you cannot see. So yes. um, visibility of, of successful female academics is uh, really important, I think. That kind of women in STEM thing that, yeah. that we're trying to do in our school at the moment is quite, oh, okay. quite interesting. Um, but when we're looking up women in STEM, when we um, look at the research and ask the students to research about it, um, it's always historical <laughs> females. It's always yeah, not <laughs> Marie Curie, yeah. <laughs> and it's not people who are active at yeah. the moment, um, apart from yourself, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Jennifer Fax. I've got a long, it? long way to go though. Yeah. And it's um it's very interesting about it's you know, the you've got a huge time commitment at the university, but it's incredible that you're able to give the time to support younger learners to see like you being this successful academic that people can't be. Is amazing. Thank you. I, I do think it's really important. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the days of scientists being stuck in the university just with their heads down getting on with stuff yeah. is gone. And we need to be engaging with the public and with school children so that they can see what careers are available to them. We've still got, when we Google scientists, it still comes up with the either Einstein or the mad scientist uh, that comes yeah. up. Yeah. I would love it to type scientist 
and you and <laughs> Professor Lee Sue Mark comes up. Just normal people. <laughs> yeah, just just people that are actually successful. Um, okay, so we've got Dan Brown, Dave Grohl, I've just got Professor Dave Sue Black. Is she in the middle of anyone? Or just she can choose her own fate. <laughs> <laughs> she might be a fan. <laughs> she might be. <laughs> she might be dancing away to Monkey Wrench. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> and who's next? So my last guest, um, I think, I'm not sure if she would really want to be at this dinner party, but what I would say was that um, I would like to have a cup of tea in a scone with my gran. That's, that's my biggest wish, I think. So why is that? Um, so my gran was a wonderful woman and she died a few years ago now. But um, I think she would just be really, really proud, actually. Really proud to hear of what I'm doing now. She was a very successful woman herself. She was one of very few women to go to Glasgow University at the time. Wow. Um, and then actually my mum went to Glasgow University and then I went to Glasgow University. So there were three generations of women there and um, so she was she was really really proud of me following in her footsteps and then um i, I just think that she, she was always really very supportive of everything that i wanted to do and yeah i just i just wish that i could chat to her now mm. about what i'm doing because i know that she would be so interested um, and that's I mean I'm talking professionally here um, because she would have she would have really supported my career choices and um, I think she, she gave me my teaching background so she was actually assistant head teacher of the local high school so I think the fact that I ended up teaching as part of my job as well I think that she would have really liked um, but then also from a personal point of view, she never got to meet my daughter. Mm. It would have been her great-granddaughter. And so to be able to tell her about my wee girl would just be amazing. Dr Jennifer Paxton, how amazing was that interview? I really enjoyed meeting um, Jennifer, um, it was a fantastic interview and she's such a fantastic person and it was a really great afternoon and not just because I went and got some custard tarts from Lidl which I highly recommend. Um, so my website is mrl246.co.uk and I'm going to put all the details in, I'm going to put a little blog about um, Jennifer and the meeting and I'll put everything in their um, websites like the Built and Body Parts website um, and Twitter addresses and anything else that I've totally missed on this podcast 
But just so you have it, um, Dr Jennifer Paxton's um, Twitter name is at dr doctor underscore jzp. Um, my Twitter handle is at Mr L two four six zero one. Does anybody call them handles anymore? I do. Um, and Instagram is Mr L two four six zero one. Haven't really put that much on it, but yeah, I hope you like it. Um, I would love to get some feedback on this, and if there's anybody that you think I should be interviewing next, um, hopefully see you soon. Bye! Oh, and remember to wash your hands. <laughs> Bye! <laughs>